Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. As we move from gathering to listening, our scripture reading today is from the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 33, through chapter 12, verse 2. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, David. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. My name is Pete, and glad that you're with us. We are in week nine of a 10-week series called The Whole Gospel, and uh, that means next week will be our last in the series before we start another journey through the church calendar, starting with the first week of Advent, two weeks from today. So looking forward to doing that soon. This morning, we're talking about worship. And I know that for many of us, when you hear the word worship, you think of singing or music in church. And that is certainly a big part of how Christians worship, but worship is actually about a lot more than that. And so I wanna start by helping us establish sort of a basic theology of worship. And uh, we'll start real broad, and then we'll get into some of the specifics of how we approach it here at Antioch. So I think it's helpful to think about worship at three levels or three layers, starting with the broadest and then narrowing down to the more specific. So the broadest definition of worship there at the top of the funnel has to do with the orientation of the human soul towards something greater than itself. Okay, so this isn't necessarily worship in a religious or a spiritual sense. We're just talking about what it is to be human. David Foster Wallace was a brilliant Gen X writer who uh, never embraced um, any faith tradition officially, but he understood that the instinct to worship is innate within human beings. Uh, Listen to these famous lines from his commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, which happens to be just three years uh, before he tragically died by suicide. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to help keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. And the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. And I think Wallace is right, that we are all worshipers, Christian or non, religious or not, conscious or not, we all worship something. So in its broadest sense, this is what worship is all about, the default orientation of the human soul towards something greater than itself. Every single one of us has something or someone that we have deemed of ultimate value and worth, and that is the thing that we live for. So everybody worships, that's the first layer. The next layer down then is Christian worship. If we all worship something, what makes someone's worship distinctly Christian? Uh, I'd say there are at least two ingredients. And the first is that Christian worship is directed to the God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. So there's millions of conceptions of God out there. So just saying that you worship God doesn't make your worship Christian unless you are referring specifically to the God of the Bible, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, who has eternally existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and made himself known to us in Jesus. Christians don't worship in general. We worship in Christ. And since Christ is both Savior and Lord, he doesn't just get control over that one part of our life we call religion or spirituality. Christian worship about, is about the orientation of an entire life towards the glory of God. And so we have a perfect example of this in the last four verses of Romans 11, which contain a doxology, which is a word spoken or sung to the glory of God. And it's a declaration of God's goodness and greatness. So listen to the doxology in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So these are words of awe and wonder that flow from a heart that is set on worshiping God. So Christian worship then at this layer isn't something we do. It's a way of being. It's a life that's soaked and saturated with God. It's the determination to live every day from him and through him and for him. Or in the words of Jesus, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the kind of worship that Paul's talking about at the beginning of Romans 12. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, 
In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Now in those days, every religion made sacrifices to their gods. Those sacrifices were usually dead. Paul says Christian worship is about bringing God a living sacrifice, which he says is our whole self offered to him. And Paul is saying then that Christian worship isn't just an event, it's a lifestyle. I love how Peterson puts it in the message. He says, take every day, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Okay, so that's the first part of Christian worship. The orientation of a whole self, our whole life, towards the God who's revealed himself in Christ. And then the other key ingredient, I think, is the fact that when we worship God, we aren't the ones who are reaching out to him. It's significant that verse 1 begins with the word therefore and ends with the word worship. It means that Christian worship isn't a cause, it's an effect. It's not an action, it's a reaction. God is the one who initiates relationship with us. He creates us, he pursues us, he reveals himself to us, he calls us to himself, he saves us and forgives us and puts his spirit in us. He gives us a new heart that longs to know him and be with him and become like him. God reaches out to us in love and invites us to share in his very life. And when we, by the grace of Jesus and the power of the spirit, say yes to that invitation, that's called worship. So Christian worship, then, is the orientation of our whole self towards God in response to his revelation to us in Christ. It's not just something we do or say every once in a while. It's a way of being that constitutes our entire life and identity. That is the second layer of worship. So if we were to pause right here and I ask you, does that describe your life? Is your whole being oriented towards God? Do you worship Jesus as a lifestyle? I don't know about you, but if you asked me that, I would say, sometimes. <laughs> Not that well, but I want to, <laughs> and I try. But it's hard because the truth is, there are a million different forces competing for my worship. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? I want my worship to be oriented towards God, and sometimes and in some ways it is, but sometimes and in some ways it's just not. And I know that Wallace is right, that if you worship anything besides God, it will eat you alive, but I still struggle to keep my life oriented around Jesus. I wonder if you can relate. So, where does that leave us then? What are we supposed to do with a description of Christian worship that uh, doesn't quite describe where we're at? And I would say, man, if only there were a way of training my heart towards God. If only there was something I could do that would help me orient my life around Jesus. 
If only there were a place I could go, maybe even every week, maybe even first thing on the first day of every week, where I could join with other Christians who also want to learn how to worship God. That would be awesome. The third layer of worship is gathered Christian worship. And this is the event that happens when God gathers his church at a time and place set apart for them to share in specific worship practices such as singing, praying, reading scripture, hearing the gospel, receiving the Lord's table, and so on. So in other words, when we talk about gathered Christian worship, we're talking about what we do here on Sunday mornings, along with millions of others around the world. And the reason that we do this isn't just so that we can check the God box on our list and move on with our week. It's so that with all the competing forces for our affection and our attention that we face Monday through Saturday, we have a place where we can go every week to recenter ourselves in the love of God and to be re-rooted in the grace of Jesus. Sundays are where we learn how to worship God and serve him only. So if we go back to Romans 12.1, Paul says to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And I actually prefer the old King James of this verse better. It says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So the word that's translated worship can also be translated as service. When we present ourselves to God and offer our lives to him, that is an act of worship or an act of service. Have you ever wondered why it's called a church service? Who's doing the serving? Who's getting served? The reason we're here is to serve God. This is our service to him, to offer ourselves to him in worship, to love him, to bless him, to honor him, to thank him, and to praise him. This service, and every service, is for God. Ever since the beginning of the story of redemption, God has called his people to gather together in his name and to present our bodies to him in worship through song and prayer and word and table. Now, for those of us whose primary, primary church experience has been evangelical, we're used to calling the singing part of the service worship, right? But throughout church history, most of the church has referred to the service as worship, and singing is just one part of it. Make sense? Okay, so the idea is then that God calls his people to regularly gather together in his name to present ourselves to him in worship. And it's not because he needs it, it's because we need it. Like the doxology says, who has ever given to God? God doesn't need our worship, but we need to worship him. Why? Because the way we worship deeply shapes the kind of person we become. Listen to what Paul says in verse two. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul says that something profound happens when we offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. It changes us. And that's because worship has the power to renew our minds and transform our wills. In other words, worship isn't just something we do. It does something to us. So if you want to be the kind of person who's transformed into an entire life oriented towards God, someone who knows God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, it starts with worship. And this is something that Christians have known for a long time. The early church had a phrase that went something like this, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, which translates, as we pray, so we believe, so we live. Our prayers, meaning the way we worship, shape our beliefs, and our beliefs, in turn, shape our lives. So worship isn't just something we do, it does something to us. So as followers of Jesus, then, our souls will be radically impacted by our participation in gathered Christian worship. It's not the only factor in our formation. Our entire life is a classroom for Jesus to work in. But Christ has chosen his beloved community, the church, to be his body, his bride, his household, and to play a central role in the transformation of his people. And this is already true. Whether you know it or not, your life and faith in Jesus have already been deeply shaped by the paradigms and practices of the worshiping communities you've been part of. And so maybe you look back with fondness on the people and places that have shaped your faith, or maybe you've had to unlearn a bunch of bad theology and it's been painful. For most of us, it's probably a mixture of both. So as we pray, so we believe, so we live. How we worship determines who we become. So my question then is, how should we worship? What should gathered Christian worship look like if it's that big of a deal in shaping us into the people that God created and called us to be? Like, what's the best way for the church to worship when it comes to all the different styles and structures and forms and practices? Which ways of worshiping will be the most conducive to the Spirit's work of forming Christ in us? Well, if we plug this question into our chart, then we see how the two major Protestant streams tend to approach gathered Christian worship. So on the left, we have mainline, which primarily consists of churches associated with the historical Protestant denominations, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopal, and so forth. And then on the right, you have evangelical worship, which includes most Baptist, Pentecostal, charismatic denominations, along with uh, most non-denominational churches. So we're gonna walk through this real quick, but I wanna remind you again These are generalizations. There's all kinds of exceptions and variations out there, but I still think it's helpful. So when it comes to the style of worship, 
Mainline services tend to be more traditional. Evangelical services tend to be more modern or contemporary. And this often starts with the church building itself. Mainline churches tend to worship in buildings that are more traditional in their architecture and decor. Kind of, they look like your classic church building, right? And evangelical churches tend to be more prone to spaces that are maybe a little bit less traditional and more modern. When it comes to the structure of the worship service, most mainline churches are liturgical. They follow a set order of worship that includes readings, prayers, creeds, confessions. And evangelical worship, on the other hand, tends to be a little bit more flexible, less ceremonial, and either more familial or more theatrical and produced. Um, Their order of service in evangelicalism tends to be Uh, simpler, consisting of fewer parts, mostly just singing and preaching with a few announcements thrown in. Um, Mainline churches tend to follow the church calendar. Evangelical churches tend not to, other than maybe Christmas and Easter. Regarding the tone of the service, mainliners tend to be more formal. Evangelicals tend to be more casual. When it comes to how people engage in worship, I think you'll find that mainline churches tend to appeal more to the intellect and evangelicals tend to appear more, appeal more to the emotions. And the emphasis in mainline worship is on the physical. The right here, the right now, this life, this world. And the emphasis in evangelical worship is more about the spiritual. What's happening beneath the surface or behind the scenes. And then finally, the main event in uh, many mainline worship services is the Eucharist, or the Lord's table. That's what the whole service kind of leads up to. And in evangelical worship, the main event is usually the sermon. Um, The music at the beginning gets you ready for the sermon, and the music at the end lets you respond to the sermon. Mainline sermons tend to be pretty short. Evangelical sermons tend not to. So, that's how gathered Christian worship plots on our chart. And again, there are millions of variations and exceptions, but these are kind of two ends of the spectrum. And we're not even talking about the theological differences that would show up in what is being prayed or sung or preached. We're just talking about the shape of the worship service. Okay, so when it comes to Antioch, which side are we on? Are we mainline or evangelical? you know at this point in the series that the answer is yes, or neither, or both, or I don't know, right? Um, This is one of those places, again, where our church doesn't fit very nicely into any category. And we tend to be much more mainline than most evangelicals are used to, and much more evangelical than most mainliners are used to, which means all of us are disoriented and (laughs) a little bit confused all the time. And I love that about us. So you could try to go both and in the sense of we are both traditional and modern, liturgical, and flexible, but at a certain point that just breaks down and doesn't make a lot of sense. And so um, instead, this week, what I wanna do is just give you a couple of terms that we use to try to capture the best of both worlds. So we want our worship at Antioch to be historically rooted, 
and culturally responsive. Historically rooted means deeply connected to and reflective of Christ's global historic church. For me, one of the most comforting and grounding truths is that we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. And it's been going on for a long, long time. We're not making this thing up as we go. Christianity is a received faith. We don't get to define it, we receive it. And we have over 2,000 years of the church's preaching and teaching and witness and worship to draw from. So we'd be foolish and arrogant to say that we don't need any of that, we're just gonna do our own thing. In my observation, lots of evangelical churches fall into the trap of ignoring the church's history. They try to skip from Acts 2 to 2023. And as a result, are left with a rootless, shallow spirituality. But we want to worship with the wisdom and humility to learn from those who have gone before us. So that's what I mean by historically rooted. So that's why we follow the church calendar. We have liturgy that we use. We have prayers and confessions and creeds that have been passed down from us. We have a public reading of scripture. We preach from the lectionary. We come to the table every week and we try to make a big deal about it. So worship, worshiping Jesus isn't new or trendy or popular. It's about joining something that's been going on for a long, long time and will continue a long, long time after we're gone. So, we want to be historically rooted, and we want to be culturally responsive. And that means that we want to be firmly embedded and incarnated into our specific local context. Peterson said, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We want our worship to make sense and to fit the place God has called us to. Culture is kind of this big, hard-to-define thing, but it basically just means whatever is normal where you are. The way people talk and dress and relate to each other, the way they see themselves and see the world, their beliefs, their values, their practices, all the stuff that makes up everyday life for the people living in a particular place, that's culture, whatever is considered normal there. And of course, it's hard to figure out culture, first because it's always changing, and secondly, because there's always multiple cult cultures present at any given moment. My observation is that lots of mainline churches have given up and fallen into the trap of locking into cultural expressions of worship that have no resonance with the people that they're trying to serve. But Psalm 137 asks, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? What does it look like and sound like to worship God here in this place? That's what I mean by culturally responsive. So that's why we have a band rather than a choir, for example. We sing lots of newer songs and we try to th keep things fairly casual and relaxed on Sundays. We use theological language, but try not to be too stuffy or formal. We try to have good art and design and coffee, right? <laughs> These things that matter in the place that we live. We serve Lone Pine coffee every week. 
Our Christmas Eve posters were done by a local artist whose work you may recognize from many of our local breweries and dispensaries. Not that any of you know anything about those places, but (laughs) if you look closely, you may or may not see some mushrooms hanging on the Christmas trees. Um, We want our worship to be historically rooted, but we also want it to feel like bend. We want it to be normal here. And this isn't unique to Antioch. This is something that every church in the world is trying to do. We just want to be deliberate in how we do it. By the way, did you know that the native peoples had a name for Pilate Butte before we ever got here? And it was their word for black and white. So if you notice, all winter long, when it snows, one half that, that gets the sun melts off and the other half stays white. And so they called it black and white butte. There's a reason we chose this color scheme for our place of worship. And if you don't like it, you can take it up with our indigenous friends. So, <laughs> in the uh, seat back in front of you, there's a card that says Sundays at Antioch, and it contains our order of worship. This is what we do here every single week. This is the liturgy that shapes our gatherings. And if you've been around, you know that we follow this ancient fourfold pattern that's been used since the earliest days of the church, gathering, listening, communing, and sending. And each of those four movements then contains various worship elements, singing and praying and reading and that sort of thing. And so this is essentially our attempt at engaging in faithful, gathered Christian worship that's historically rooted and culturally responsive. By the way, this card is also pretty much my doctoral thesis. Um, You may not know this, but for the last three years, as I've been developing my thinking and theology around congregational worship and trying it out on you guys, um, (laughs) I'm writing it all down and I'm getting ready to turn it in for my doctorate of ministry degree. So um, I'm writing on the uh, reimagining the shape of congregational worship in the white evangelical church. And uh, what you've heard today is maybe 5% of my project that uh, is due on December 1st. So um, I'll go back to January, go back to Western Theological Seminary in January to present and defend, and if all goes well, uh, I'll graduate in April. So thanks for being my guinea pigs, and uh, sorry if I haven't emailed you back. Um, (laughs) I'm getting there. Let's bring it home. As we pray, so we believe, so we live. The way we worship shapes the kind of people we're becoming. Here's why I think this is especially important in our cultural moment. Because worship not only shapes our corporate identity, how we see ourselves, but it also shapes our public identity, how the world sees us. And the world is watching. In her book, Evangelical Worship, Melanie Cross points out a really interesting observation. 
And that is that almost every time there's a news story about evangelicals, it's accompanied by a photo of people singing with their eyes closed and their hands raised. And even if the story itself has nothing to do with worship, she says our worship as evangelicals has become foundational to our public identity in the 21st century. So for better or worse, the way we worship shapes the way the world sees us. Our worship determines our witness. So we'd better make sure we're taking it seriously. Rich Velotis says, Christianity in the United States is often characterized by a deep desire to have Christianity pervade our culture, but not have Christ permeate our being. We're here because we want Christ to permeate our being. And so we come every week not to be served, but to serve God and to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. And the only reason we can do that is because Christ first offered his body as a sacrifice not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So let's come receive Jesus again this morning. Amen.